CPI, PPI, and here come the earnings. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Glad you're here. we got a packed hour. Let's get right to it. I'm Danny Clayton. Dr. Brian Jacobson, our Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management, is here. Welcome. It's great to be here. Dave Spano, our President and CEO, is here. Good. Thanks, Danny. And of course, what we want to talk about in the first part of the show is the week in review. And it was a good week. Gains of the Dow and the S&P, both over 2%, and the NASDAQ even higher. Yeah, it's been a really interesting week. Some good news, of course, on the macroeconomic front, but I also think that investors are looking forward to earnings season. Uh, according to the way that I usually look at things, whenever the big banks, whenever they start announcing earnings, which happened on Friday morning, uh, that kind of kicks things off. And so far, it looks like optimism is uh, really running a little high. Yeah, so we're going to look at earnings going forward. And of course, that is the big story as we go into the third quarter. However, we can't walk by what we've seen on inflation numbers. You know, a year ago, CPI was as high as 9% in the most current rating, it's down to three. So there's no doubt that the Federal Reserve's aggressive rate hike has been working. It, it has been. And I think that's a great observation is to recognize that the Federal Reserve's, their rate hikes have. It hasn't just happened naturally, right? It has taken this effort by the Federal Reserve to do the aggressive path from basically 0% up above 5% for the federal funds rate. And when we got the consumer price index number, which was for June, we can talk about that later on. The 0.158% unrounded month on month was pretty impressive. Uh, it took a lot of people by a pleasant surprise to say that inflation is on that long off-ramp towards that 2% target. So we saw a CPI number and, of course, PPI, which is Producer Price Index, numbers this week, as well as a beige book. You and I spent some time off-air talking about that beige book report. Yeah, the beige book is a lot of fun. Uh, it was a lot more exciting than the color, beige. Uh, but, you know, they used to print these things, and it actually did have a beige color to it, and they've just kind of kept that name. And it gives us anecdotes from a around the Federal Reserve districts. There's 12 of them in the United States. And each district, they really talk to business owners and bankers as to what's going on with economic conditions. Two of those districts said that economic activity has declined, which is an early warning that maybe there is a recession beginning to brew. And it is so far fairly localized, but we have to watch, is that going to start to spread? And we have watched that closely, but there's certainly a disconnect because you look at consumer sentiment and that is going up, which is really hard to believe when you see all of this negative news. Yeah, it was really hard to reconcile with that beige book saying that consumer activity is beginning to falter, but yet the University of of Michigan's preliminary reading for consumer sentiment actually improved. We're back to where it was in September 2021. So coming out of COVID, during COVID, consumer sentiment was at a historic low. And then we got a really big bounce after the lockdowns ended. And we're back to that point. Now, we are still a far ways away from where we were pre-COVID, but it has been improving, even though consumers don't seem to really be doing that with their bending. They're actually slowing their spending, except for on leisure and hospitality. Yeah. That is the one area that they seem to refuse to give up on. Yeah, they certainly are. They're out spending. And at the same time, we saw a spread, and we don't want to get too wonky here, but the spread between the 10-year Treasury and the two-year Treasury was as wide as what we've seen in 40 years. And why that's important, it's usually a harbinger of a slowing economy. And that was incredible. That was a 40-year high just last week. 
It was. Now, the interesting thing is we were anticipating that we were going to see uh, historic lows as far as the spread between the two-year and the 10-year all the way back in January. We did get a, a big negative number, but it got even more negative when it looked like the Federal Reserve was going to try to, what we would say, out-hawk the market. By hawk, that means that they are going to try to squawk a lot about hiking rates. And so you did see that massive inversion where the two-year yield was much higher than the 10-year. But now it's begun to correct a little bit after we got those inflation numbers. So maybe the market is telling us the Fed doesn't have to go as far as what we originally feared. And there is certainly a lot of squawking that's going to happen up until July 26, because that is when the Fed meets. And highly likely that they will raise rates at that meeting. But we're going to listen to what they say afterwards on what the path could be going forward. And then, of course, if you stick around, we're going to talk about the earning season that's just beginning in the opportunity set that is before us. Dave Spano is our president and CEO, Annex Wealth Management. Brian Jacobson, our chief economist. A couple of things you can do on the weekend. Sign up for the Axiom, our free weekly newsletter. We're all over social media, including a really good Annex Wealth Management YouTube channel. But check out this show at the top of the hour as a podcast. Places like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Also in the Axiom newsletter delivered on Sunday. It is Saturday, July 15th, Bastille Days, Harley Homecoming, so much going on. Thanks for listening. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. We're going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. We're back. Website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. I'm Danny Clayton. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, Annex Wealth Management in the studio. So is Dave Spano, our President and CEO. Good. Thanks, Danny. And of course, the Federal Reserve meets in just a little bit, and we'll have to hear what they have to say, as well as earnings season is beginning. And this is really the time, folks, when companies have to give their report cards of what they expect for revenues and for earnings. And it's really a place to discern in your portfolio. But there's still some risks that we see on the second half of the year. For example, commercial real estate, international issues, and, of course, the banking crisis that we saw in the first half of the year it are behind us. But what's in front of us, there is some opportunities as well. Yeah, we do think that on the investment committee that there are plenty of opportunities. We believe that it's just probably prudent to focus a little bit more on quality in portfolios. We want to participate in the markets despite the risks. Because if you think about why is it that over long periods of time, equities are outperform bonds. Just the historical record is pretty clear about that. A lot of it is because it's almost a psychological effect. There's plenty of things to fear. And yet history has shown that companies tend to be pretty adaptive and have been able to navigate these challenges. And so it almost seems like there's an infinite number of things to be worried about, but yet we've always been able to kind of thread this needle to progress. And so if you're listening to this and you're going through your portfolio and you are not a client, of course you have to discern through all of these sectors, individual names, small cap, large cap, and even international, as well as what's happening in the fixed income market. And of course, there is still some opportunities in fixed income. Yeah, and the fixed income side of things, we think that, you know, with cash yields where they are today, still attractive, but you do have to start thinking about what happens if and when the Federal Reserve decides to start cutting rates. Those cash yields tend to move down as the Federal Reserve starts cutting. And does that then create opportunities in other parts of the fixed income market? One of the areas that uh, we're pretty keen on is really looking at higher quality, somewhat longer duration fixed income so that we can try to lock in some of those yields that 
might be somewhat high right now relative to history. And uh, and as a financial planning concept, of course, trying to time the market is not a very good idea, but looking for opportunities in pairing or overweighting or underweighting is the time to do that. And of course, Brian, you know, we often go through each one of those portfolios. And if you're a prospective client, we would take your portfolio and go through them line by line and say, this is where the opportunity set, or this is where we think we can improve on your portfolio. And that's just one of the things that we do, Brian, when people walk in. There's a lot of defensive plays that people can make in their portfolios. That's correct. You know, one of the really rewarding things uh, emotionally is working with clients to try to come up with a portfolio structure that is aligned with their financial goals. And really, trying to get that structure right is going to do most of the heavy lifting in terms of achieving those financial goals. But then what are the different guardrails that we can put around that, the different bands in terms of trying to add some value to help navigate these markets? And right now, that's what a lot of our time is spent doing on our investment committee is discussing how to navigate these markets where, you know, we're getting back up towards some, you know, 4,500, if not higher on the S&P 500. Have it, has it gone too far too fast? And then what's not not just the downside, but then most importantly, what are the longer-term upside opportunities? Danny, it's just not these shows that we do to try to communicate. We put out the Axiom every Sunday, and if folks want to get more information, there's a way to do that. Sure. You can just head to our website. In fact, that's where it starts. Just head to the website and click and find the Axiom sign-up button. If we can help, do the Get Started button. Dave, you're talking about the portfolio review. Folks, don't think that we're going to look at your stuff and tell you everything that you have done wrong. We're going to look at your stuff, like you said, what is worth working and what can improve. So I don't want anybody to hesitate thinking, yeah, that's right. oh, I'm going to get graded. No, gonna yeah, get, we're going to get, you know, not going to get graded. We're going to say, where's an opportunity going forward? And the second thing besides the Axiom, Danny, is we have a lot of events planned and you can find those as well on our website. For sure. Now, it's middle of July. I think we, yeah, we did one last week, uh, Destination Retirement. Are we there yet? So we're off for the rest of July. We've got a bunch in August as well. And if you're a client, make sure you check that client center because we do special stuff for you because, frankly, you get more as a client. Think about it. We would love to help you out. You know, over one-third of retirees have some sort of cognitive decline. Knowing when to say when and finding somebody to help with their affairs is important. We work with our clients on this all the time. We'll cover that after a break on Money Talk. This is the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? This is a segment about knowing when to say when. As we age, or those we love age, there are things that we should leave to somebody else. The endless yard work, the climbing on the roof to clean out the gutters, the driving in the crazy traffic. Let somebody else do that. And that's from the physical side. But what about this? About a third of retirees deal with some level of cognitive impairment or dementia. Finding the right time to transfer control of finances to a trusted agent is important, needs to be done correctly, and at the right time to prevent financial mistakes or exploitation. Jill Martin is a wealth strategist and estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management, and this is something she and the rest of the estate planning team are familiar with. Welcome back, Jill. Thanks, Danny. So I've heard of some real ugly moments, even when it comes to convincing a parent to even give up driving. It's got to be harder to have that talk about giving up some control over financial matters. Well, I mean, if we think about our daily lives, we're all in control of everything, right? And so anytime that you have to start giving that up when it's undesirable in your mind is hard. And so we talk about driving, that 
is always a bugaboo, but finances are very personal, right? And a lot of times we don't allow other people to know about our finances. And so it's the last thing we want to give control up about. You know, I was kind of blessed because my dad, when he was living in Arizona, actually said to my sister and I, will you let me know when it's time? Not everybody has that. No. And a lot of people resist it, right? They think, oh, I'm just as sharp as I was 10 years ago, or they don't want to relinquish some of that privacy that comes along with it. And so it gets to be really hard to figure out, A, how do you have that conversation? Or have we as children or friends and family started to see something that raises some red flags for us? So what is the best way to structure that conversation? You know, it's a hard one to say the least, right? Usually everyone gets to that point at some point in time during their lifetime where they realize they need help with something, right? So sometimes if there's just the little bit of the door that cracks open, that's when we can really, as family members, loved ones, kind of really push our way in. And But you have to do it very tactfully, right? It's a, I'm not taking over control. I just want to help supervise and make sure that you're not getting taken advantage of. And it really comes, I think, more from that standpoint mm-hmm. of trying to be supportive rather than taking something away. Okay, let's say there's buy-in. The loved one realizes their limitations, recognizes the start of a decline. There was a Vanguard survey about cognitive decline that showed about 10% would choose a sibling to take things over, 9% a trustee, but 70% of the time the preferred trusted agent was a child or a child-in-law where they weren't going to be naming a spouse or a partner. Is that good, right? It's better? Well, I mean, you want to name somebody, right? I mean, you don't necessarily want it to just fall onto whatever the default law is where all of a sudden we're worrying about guardianships. So it's critical to name someone. It's really about who do you trust that's going to do what's in your best interest from a financial standpoint because you're still alive. So your money is to be used for your benefit and your benefit exclusively. So you don't want to have someone who maybe has some financial issues of their own or you don't trust is going to be able to take care of your finances in the way that you have during your lifetime. Jill Martin is a wealth strategist and estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management, knowing when to say when in cases of cognitive decline. The goal is communicating needs and desires, understanding the financial situation, pursuing their interests, And that's both financial and estate planning. We do that together. We bundle that. We do. I talk to clients about lifetime planning, which is making sure there's people in place while they're still alive that can help support them, whether it's physically, mentally, financially, right? And then there's the actual estate planning side, which is the where does everything go once I'm gone? And so we want to make sure that we're looking at all of those pieces from the estate planning standpoint to wrap it all together so there's some consistency. How soon does control transfer? If it's too early, it might be kind of awkward we're too late, it's worse, right? I mean, there are cases where people are, quote, too far gone. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have any type of documentation in place and then suddenly you try and go and have an estate plan done with an attorney and the attorney is like, hey, I don't think this person has capacity or is understanding what the planning is that we're trying to do, likely you're not going to be able to have documents legally put into place. And then what happens is we have to transition into guardianship through the court supervision process. So waiting too long is definitely more painful than being ahead of it. But there are ways to put the documents in place at any point in time. Anytime we're after the age of 18, we can have legal documents to name someone to step in for us. Doesn't mean you have to give them control right away. Speaking of those legal documents, starting early helps, of course. You know, there's a lifetime of saving and investing. There's got to be different accounts. There's passwords. There's custodians. There's all sorts of things. Somebody needs time to get their hands around that. Absolutely. And I always talk to 
clients about leaving a trail of breadcrumbs. Basically, you can do this through kind of like a financial organizer. We have one here that we have clients work with. It kind of summarizes like all of your demographic information. Where are your assets held? Who are your advisors? You know, what types of accounts are they? Even beneficiaries and how things are registered is important. And then what I typically tell people is, is separately, separate document, have usernames and passwords or use kind of like a password service that can kind of protect them for you. You definitely want to make sure that family members that you've named in those estate planning documents have access to that. So if something happens to you, they can find it real easily to kind of pick up your financial life. Know when to say when. There are steps. We take them with our clients so the process is smooth as possible. Jill Martin, a wealth strategist and estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management, part of the team. Thanks for joining us. You bet. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, Saturday, July 15th. It is bottom of the hour. Time to get caught up. And for that, let's head to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Time for Ask Annex. You got a question? You head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask button. As always, if we can help you, click the Get Started button. Sarah Kyles, a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. Hi, Danny. And we got Matt Moores, the investment team manager. Welcome to you. Hey, Danny. First question, are spending limits spelled out in a financial plan and does the amount change as I age? So is it like an allowance? We don't really call them spending limits, but we call them living expenses. So the financial plans that we create are very unique and personalized. So we typically keep that base living expense a constant throughout the lifetime of the plan. But obviously you have goals at different stages in your life. So those expense numbers will increase. So let's say you want to start traveling from age 65 to age 80. You want to spend $20,000 a year. So we'll add that on as an additional expense. So by default, those expenses are going up. You may retire early and need a health care for a couple of years until Medicare kicks in. So we'll add an additional expense onto that, saving for a wedding. So, you know, it all depends on the unique situation, but those base living expenses stay constant. And then we add the additional expenses on for the goals. Must be kind of fun to see that you get that travel budget and the wedding budget. Right? Yeah, it's really fun to project. And really the, the software we use is so powerful. We can really do some unique, creative things for people. Next question. I was told not to invest my HSA until I had the equivalent of my deductible saved. Does that sound right? So it's really going to depend on your unique personal situation, how you plan on using the HSA. So first, it is good to have some cash within that plan. In fact, most places will mandate that you have a certain amount of cash before you can invest anything. The one that, that I use, you have to have $1,000 of cash before you can invest anything. You can invest anything over that. Some might be higher. But really, what's the purpose of the HSA? Are you going to cover current expenses with it? Are you using it to save for future retirement health savings in terms of using it then to, to cover expenses later on? Maybe it's some of that from retiring early that you're going to need some of those funds for. So it's a more of a long-term HSA plan. So you want to know what you're going to use it for. But if you are going to use it for expenses you're going to have this year, then yeah, I would certainly keep a more in cash than you would normally have because then you can cover that. But if you're just going to use your credit card to cover current day expenses, then you probably don't need as much. Yeah, and I always suggest that if your cash flow can cover your medical expenses currently, do not use that HSA and let that grow because we all know that that grows tax-free and it comes out tax-free for qualified medical expenses. So if you can let that account grow as much as possible and then when you don't have income and you don't have that cash flow, then you can draw from that HSA to pay for those medical expenses, it makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, and then just think too, let's say you do have a larger medical expense this year. A lot of places will allow you to put that on a payment plan for no interest. So you can spread that out over a longer time period. So maybe you're only paying 100 or $200 a month to cover that larger expense. So you don't need all of that cash in your HSA to cover that. You just need a little bit. So just think about how you're going to cash flow that today. How are you going to do it in the future? And what's that overall purpose? 
Always open for questions at AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask tab next up. When a big fund dumps a stock, what does that tell us? Sometimes nothing. You know, it really depends on what they're trying to do. You know, they might do it because it might have hit a price limit that they're looking at in terms of they had a goal for what that stock was going to go up to, what they thought was perceived fair value and want to get out. Maybe they have redemptions coming into that fund and they need to liquidate a position to create cash in order to fund those distributions. Maybe it's a sector play. They're changing from one area of the market to another. So there's a lot that's going on that might not necessarily have to do with that one specific stock. Most likely, it probably has nothing to do with your ownership of that stock as well, too. Yeah, and there's that old adage that says... They sell for many reasons and they only buy for one. Next up, Ask Annex. If the U.S. is doing better than most regions economically, does it make sense to concentrate more fully at home until others begin to improve? So I think it's going to depend on what your time frame is that you're looking to invest in. Right now, the U.S. has been stronger than the rest of the world has been from an economic standpoint, but it's not necessarily always going to be that way. So you want to think forward looking from that perspective. So maybe you think that the rest of the world might be starting to bottom and maybe earnings are coming down, maybe issues with oil prices, the war in Russia, Ukraine are starting to hit, but there's going to be a light on the other side of that tunnel. You might want to start overweighting other parts of the world before it gets better, because if you wait till it gets better or until after it gets better and you feel more comfortable about it, everybody's done it before you and you're going to miss out on the biggest gains that you possibly could have had. Final question on Ask Annex. How can one be confident that information from companies in emerging markets is real or can be trusted? That is a great question. It's one of the reasons why we use active managers overseas. Those managers go and visit different countries. They have analysts that maybe even live in a lot of those different countries as well, too. They know what's happening politically. They know what's happening from a military standpoint. They have a better understanding of how their economies work. Is the government really highly involved or is it not? Places like China, where state owns part or all of the state-owned enterprises in terms of how much equity ownership are you really going to have and how much control is that government going to have over those companies? Those active managers really have a good handle on it. They're also able to see the data that's coming from those companies that they're researching in and comparing it against the data that's coming from the country itself of what their overall economy is doing. And sometimes those things don't jive. In fact, there's an active manager that we use and have talked to quite a bit where they actually got out of Russia before the Russia and Ukraine war, not because they necessarily saw that a war was about to happen and that was going to make the Russia stock market be zero. But what they saw was that the data that was coming out of companies in Russia did not look good. But the data coming from Russia was saying that the economy was healthy and was doing better. And those two things didn't jive to them. And they said, you know what, we don't trust the data that's coming out of these. So we can't invest there. So they're lowering the risk of that portfolio by taking you away from some of that volatility you might have. And they saved their clients quite a bit of money when Russia, you know, essentially closed their stock market. Matt Morsey, Investment Team Manager. Thanks. Thank you. Sarah Kyle, Wealth Manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. You're welcome. What's a surrender squeeze? Spoiler alert, you don't want it to happen. We're going to take a break and be back with that next. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? If you like to look up investment terms, Investopedia is a good source. It's got dictionaries, advice, reviews, ratings, comparisons. It's got a long section on squeezes. You might have heard of profit squeezes, credit squeezes, short squeezes, long squeezes, bear squeezes. Investopedia says squeeze situations often accompanied by loops that make a bad situation worse. Surrender squeeze might be new to you, certainly not new to my guests. Let's say hello to Amy Kiskala, wealth strategist, estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Hey, Amy. Hey, Danny. Also joining us, Brandon Lehman, CFP, wealth manager and director of branch development. Welcome back, Brandon. Danny. Surrender squeeze. That's not where that weird uncle gets a hold of you and he doesn't let go. It's actually worse. What is it? 
It certainly can be be worse. What we're talking about here are the potential consequences when taking a loan against a life insurance policy. So if we take a step back for some context, many types of permanent life insurance will allow that owner of the policy to borrow against the policy. So like other types of loans we might be familiar with, the loan's going to charge interest. It's also going to have collateral. In this case, the, the cash value of the life insurance policy provides the collateral for, for the policy loan. Unlike other type of loans, you don't necessarily have to pay the loan back on a set schedule. If you don't pay it back, there's some flexibility. So let's say you die and you haven't paid the loan back. Life insurance company is just going to take a portion of those proceeds to pay the loan back. Yeah. And this is something that we tend to see in somebody who bought a policy a long time ago, right? So they tend to be larger policies. So you look at your business owners who had started a business and they needed that life insurance when they started. Maybe some of the executives or doctors, a big one has been doctors. Doctors have these policies where they have very large policies they took out maybe when they were residents or they were going through that start of their career. That's where you tend to see this. It's not in every policy. It's not something that's talked about in broad context, but it does exist. Those just happen to be some areas where we have particularly seen it as of late. So now let's get to the surrender squeeze part of it. So let's say I took that loan against my policy, and let's say I didn't do anything to pay it back. I didn't pay the interest, didn't pay any of the principal. That interest just simply gets added to the balance each year. So now if that loan balance starts to get too high, it's going to bump up against that cash value in the policy. And if it gets high enough, the life insurance company is going to say, well, that policy has now lapsed. They'll surrender the policy. They take that remaining cash value then to pay off the loan. So I don't get any of the cash out because I already took it in the form of a loan. But what I might get at the end of the year is a nice tax bill. So when there's gain in a policy, you know, to the extent that that cash value exceeds the basis, which is essentially the premiums that you've paid, it's going to have gain. And that gain should be ordinary income. And again, it was sold to them because life insurance does fit a need depending on your situation, all that. It's been sold to them and they've been said, you know, you can take these loans. But then as time goes on, you notice that folks forget about it. Life insurance has an opportunity and, and it works out well sometimes where it can pay it for itself, right? The dividends are paying for that loan. Well, if you forget about it, and as Amy alluded to, if that loan's too large, things can get a little different. If we were to go back in time to when the client was presented with this type of insurance proposition, what would our counterpoint or our suggestion be that might be more beneficial down the road, like as in now? You have to look at it and look to the future. What makes the most sense? What is the purpose of the policy? What, what are you getting this for? Is it because you want to use it as a retirement vehicle? Well, then you have to take a step back and say, okay, well, what type of retirement vehicle? What are the other vehicles that we're utilizing? And make sure that the insurance that you're getting matches the needs you have, not just now, but in the future. And understand that nothing from the insurance side is necessarily guaranteed. I say that word not lightly, but there's just so many moving parts and you want to factor that into the overall plan. That's right. And that's a great way to start is what's the purpose of life insurance? It's essentially a pile of cash at death. So really understanding why you need that pile of cash is very important. You know, Brandon, you referenced doctors, business owners who often might have these permanent insurance policies. Well, they often need the cash to pay estate taxes or to pay off other debts at death. And by taking that policy loan, you might be jeopardizing the ability to have that death benefit at the time when you when you really need it. So it really does start with a great comprehensive 
financial plan and understanding what all of your needs are across your lifetime and then really matching the right products and solutions to meet those needs. Well, and it's key to understand what you're doing. Understand what that loan means because this is a loan. This is just like going to the bank and getting a loan. And they'll say, well, you're taking a loan from yourself, but but you're taking a loan from the the company that issued the policy. You're not taking a loan from yourself. So now you're paying interest back to them. And a lot of times, as we've seen, Amy and I, specifically in conversations we've had, folks haven't paid it back. And that's where all of a sudden they look at cash value and they say, well, we have 100000 in cash value. And you're like, your surrender value is 3000 And by the way, these things are not cheap, are they? No, not by any stretch. Some of these policies can be very expensive. And when I say very, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. How can we help folks with with situations like this before they get into it? I think it's important to sit down and utilize a financial advisor, a team like we have here at Annex, because it's not just myself and Amy meeting with folks, right? You have the financial planning team, you have the tax team, you bring all these teams together and they can look at it and give you an objective opinion because we can't sell product, an objective opinion on what's going on. For investment, retirement planning, tax planning, and estate planning, we do it as a fee-only fiduciary. Know the difference. Website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Brandon Lehman, CFP, Wealth Manager and Director of Branch Development. Thanks for joining us. Danny. Amy Kiskel, a wealth strategist and estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's Saturday, July 15th. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back. Going to wrap things up with Dr. Brian Jacobson, our chief economist at Annex Wealth Management. Take a look at some of the major stories and what to look at a week ahead. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ. Back on the show, just a quick reminder, this show is going to be available as a podcast at the top of the hour by going to, well, wherever you get your favorite podcast. That might be Spotify, might be Apple Podcasts, wherever it will be there. I'm Danny Clayton, still in the studios, Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management. A week like last week as an economist, you must be like a farmer out watching the crops grow and collecting <laughs> them, right? It's all that data coming yeah, in. Yeah, it, yeah, you're kind of going out there and just uh, you know appreciating the bounty that is out there of the information and also the um, healthiness of what we saw too. So that was really refreshing as we already alluded to before about whether it's for inflation or even for consumer sentiment. It's looking better. I know you and Dave covered it, but was there anything in particular that, that jumped out last week as one of the big points moving forward? I think the biggest point was really that consumer price index information uh, showing not just that headline inflation slowed, but even core inflation. So when you exclude those volatile food and energy parts, that that actually decelerated as well, confirming in a way the idea that inflation is on that long off-ramp towards 2%. Um, The market is pricing that in as far as the idea that we will get to the Fed's 2% target. I think it's more a question of when as opposed to whether. The average Joe, and I consider myself an average Joe, will say, geez, we were at 9% at one mm-hmm. point. Now we're at 3 We're only 1% away. That's a tough 1%, isn't it? It, it can be, yes. Uh, the first, uh, I guess you would say the first six percentage points or so was kind of the easy part, mainly because of all the distortions that we saw coming out of COVID. And if you kind of think about your own behavior during that time, when you were during the lockdowns, you couldn't spend money on services. So suddenly you had what we would call a wall or this almost like flood 
of money chasing after goods that were unfortunately in short supply because businesses were also shut down. So it's almost like you had this wave of demand hitting a wall in supply causing all sorts of issues. That has begun to clear up and it has taken time, but there has been great progress on that supply side front. And now the question is more about mm, what's that remaining one percentage point? What, the, what is that going to take? And I think we actually got an indicator of that from the Federal Reserve's Beige Book that was released, that collection of anecdotes from around the country about what's going on, where it's showing that consumers are really cutting back. They're not cutting back on leisure and hospitality. That's the one category that people still seem willing to pay up for. But it, uh, there are signs that there is some economic slowing and that big surge of demand is really beginning to kind of lose some steam. You're an economist, not an anthropologist, but do you think that it is possible that after everything that we went through with the pandemic, we're just kind of in the place where, listen, I kind of deserve this. I, if I'm mm -hmm. going to go to a restaurant, I'm going to go to the restaurant. I do. And in fact, you know, early on, it was called revenge spending. Yeah. We're trying to make up for time. And then there was this, um, they were calling it this YOLO phenomenon. Yep. You only live once. And so, you know, why should I save so much? You know, who knows when there's going to be lockdowns again? I'm just going to do it while I can. The consumer sentiment numbers that came out, do they equate to consumer behavior as well, because you can feel one way, but mm -hmm. you act another? Yeah, so as an economist, I always like looking at what people do as opposed to what they say, because there can be that disconnect. And it does seem like that's pretty evident in the numbers so far. People are actually beginning to feel better, even though their behavior is suggesting that they're spending less. So we'll actually be able to see that with the retail sales numbers next week, if that is indeed the case. Speaking of next week, besides that, what are you looking forward to? Uh, one of the biggest ones I'm really looking looking forward to is industrial production to see what's going on as far as on the consumer side. So with retail sales, but then manufacturing on the uh, supply side, because manufacturing has been in a recession. A lot of the indicators are suggesting that they're stuck in the mud and there's still more rain to come. PPI, is that related to manufacturing or is that a different number? That's an important number. It, it's an important one, and that's related to manufacturing. So that's the producer price index, which we also got this past week, and that showed significant improvement. And so if you think about, you know, what are the costs to manufacturers and then what are they allowed to pass on to consumers? So that kind of shows you that dynamic. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thank you. Is today the day you want to make a positive step toward the kind of retirement you desire? Go to AnnexWealth.com, click that Get Started button. We'll be back next Saturday at 10 o'clock. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ.